broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho. This is the Campus Preacher Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Terrell. This is episode 79, Persecution Under Pluralism. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, FLF Network, com or crosspolitic.com. And if you head over to crosspolitic.com, you can learn more about a rally that we are holding in Cedar Rapids, South Dakota, at the end of April, the first weekend of May, um, where we will be singing songs and defying tyrants. And this is my attempt to talk more slowly. Um, a couple weeks ago here in Idaho, we had a hymn sing and I w- it was commented to me that uh, enjoyed your podcast. Uh, you speak too quickly, <laughs> and then I spoke at CRF the other night, and which is our Collegiate Reform Fellowship here in Moscow. And that I was told, yeah, I liked it, uh, but you speak too quickly. So I'm trying to slow down, uh, but when I do, I feel like everything else is disjointed. I kind of have one speed, I suppose, when I'm speaking and get into a stream of consciousness. But what I want to talk about today is persecution under pluralism. And the reason for that is you had the pastor up in Canada that got brought to jail because his church and he and his church have not been abiding by COVID restrictions. And you know, some of these debates are tedious and silly to me. And so, you know, on the way Twitter is, someone makes a comment, next thing you know, everything's blowing up. There's a guy named J- Jacob Den Hollander, who's more known because of his wife, who is Rachel Den Hollander, who was either a key witness or at least one, maybe one of the first people to raise suspicions about uh, Dr. Larry Nasser, I believe is his name, who was a Michigan State gymnast doctor or sports doctor who abused you know, maybe 150 or 250 uh, girls, at least, that came forward and to some extent witnessed against him. And so a wicked man. He was, and Rachel gave a really good testimony in court regarding the judgment of God and his only hopes, the gospel. And then over the last few years, Jacob's kind of ridden her coattails, at least on Twitter from what I've seen, and has carved out a little bit of a niche for himself, uh, usually striking out in weird uh, uh, trajectories and directions and stuff like that. But, you know, that's the nature of the beast when you are legitimately victimized at certain points. Oftentimes you get a little weird, and, uh, you know, I feel like his comments are a little weird. But anyway, a few weeks ago, he commented this regarding the Canadian situation and more directly regarding Paul. He makes this comment. I think Paul was the victim of injustice perpetrated perpetrated by his religious opponents, and then he got caught up in an unjust, slow-moving bureaucracy. He was a victim of false accusation and political manipulators. I would not characterize him as a victim of persecution. And it's one of those things where I think we can all agree that Christians can be marginalized in a sense, or individuals can be marginalized in a sense, and it's not directly because of their faith. And so now now you get into a discussion of when is it religious persecution, when is it just kind of an unjust system and all that sort of stuff. And so you and we can do that with any particular, say, police shooting. Is this a racist police shooting, or is it just a police shooting because here's the incidents and it happened to be a black man and here's a cop and blah, blah, blah. These things escalate. So it's not a racist uh, uh, attempt by the cop, but, uh, you know, but it was a black man who was shot or whatever it was. And so you can start to get kind of tedious in a lot of these discussions and go in different directions and all that sort of jazz. But I think one thing that's pretty clear in Scripture is that Paul was persecuted for being a Christian, and the early church was persecuted. And Jesus tells us that 
if we are uh, living righteously, that we will be persecuted. Uh, we are reminded by Paul that uh, anybody who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I think the reality is that we we know persecution exists, and some of the discussions of what is it going to look like under pluralism, I think, is more important than in of itself all the particulars of every single situation and kind of having, to some extent, a meaningless debate over whether Exhibit A is religious persecution. So, for example, I was arrested um, back in 2011 for preaching the gospel in um, Youngstown, Ohio. And if you read the police report, my religion was never, ever mentioned. <laughs> my, uh, I was uh, accused of being racist. Supposedly I was saying that uh, African Americans should be enslaved. I was misogynistic. Apparently I was calling women whores. And the, the, the actually, I, that day I did use that word, and I used that word in the context of, well, I don't use that word. Um, uh, but you guys will often use that. Uh, if a girl slips with a guy you want, other women will often call her a whore. And so that was the only time like I kind of used that word on campus. What's in the police report? Apparently I was calling a woman that. Then, of course, I was also accused of being a homophobe. So if you read the police report, I was charged with disorderly conduct. Was it disorderly conduct or disorderly conduct? And from there, it was because I was racist, sexist, anti-gay, and stirring up the pot on campus. So if you were just to read the police report about this guy, you'd be like, oh, some racist was on campus causing trouble, and he gets arrested. But here I am in a holding cell in Youngstown, Ohio, and the cop who arrested me, who is completely out of control, comes in, and while I'm sitting there handcuffed to a bench, and he's yelling at me, goes, you want to talk about righteousness? You want to talk about righteousness? We are all righteous in our own hearts. We are all righteous in our own hearts. And I say, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, sir. And he's, ah, he screams and he goes out in the hallway and he's literally throwing chairs and stuff like that in the hallway. Just completely lost his mind. So from a formal standpoint, you know, disorderly conduct on my part. Here I am on campus just causing a ruckus. And so let's go get this guy uh, in private. The cop very clearly made it about my religious beliefs and the things I was saying very explicitly. So you have two components of what's going on there. You have, why was I being persecuted? Was it because, uh, or why was I, yeah, why was I arrested? Or it, was it because I was a Christian or is it because I was disturbing the peace? So the public front is Mr. Darrell is disturbing the peace um, or disorderly, disorderly in his conduct. I, I keep collapsing those two things. And a few months later, I was talking to another officer, and he's like, have you ever been arrested doing this? I was like, yeah. He's like, what were they charge you with? I said, disorderly conduct. And he goes, ah, they got you with a catch-all, huh? So so the police do have, like, these dumping grounds that they can put things in. It's a minimal charge, and, you know, so if they're wrong, it's maybe a small inconvenience to them, but it's not a major inconvenience uh, really either direction, but it makes the problem go away. So under pluralism, my argument is basically that that is what we have to look for, is we're going to get squeezed on the margins— and persecuted just as the early church was because they were kind of in a similarly pluralistic culture. So what I want to do in this podcast is lay out what the goal of pluralism is and how we will be kind of persecuted under that context. So real simply, back in 2011, I actually had, a, or 2012, I had a debate with a guy named Dr. Hector Avlos at Iowa State University. I think it's online if you want to watch it. I don't think it's worth watching. I don't think I performed well. Um, I think I made the argument. I think Dr. Avlos gave the better rhetorical presentation. I was, uh, yeah, so uh, you can you can hunt that down and watch that if you'd like. But here's what he says in one of his books, and it's a little convoluted, so I'll, I'll comment on what I'm reading. And so he wants to admit that he is uh, kind of a secular humanist and that he is hegemonic in his beliefs. And so hegemony is just basically a dominant force over another. Uh, maybe the simplest way to think about it, if the, say, Puerto Rico, they need something in the United States, like, yeah, we'll give you money and give you all of that, but what you guys have to do is 
ABC. And so we're the dominant power that's able to impose our will on the Puerto Rico because they want, say, food. Say they're going hungry and we can be like, oh, yeah, we'll give you food as long as you, you know, whatever the rule would be. And then since we're the dominant force, uh, we are the hegemonic power. And so Dr. Avalos admits that he wants a secular hu humanistic hegemony here in the United States and, and around the world. And he says, so he says this, and rather than pretend that I'm not hegemonic, I hold that one, all worldviews, even those that claim pluralism are hegemonic because they inevitably seek power over those that have non-pluralistic worldview. So the simplest way to understand that is if you look at a coexist bumper sticker, that person looks like a pluralist, looks tolerant, looks accepting, looks loving. But the reality of it is what he's really calling everybody to do in that little coexist bumper sticker is to submit to his worldview. So if Muslims and, you know, say Joe atheists disagree on homosexuality, whose philosophy, the Muslim or the atheist, should win out? And the secular humanist says, oh, well, we're the arbiter, we're the neutral party, come under our authority. And so it's usually Islam in that context that would lose out on that particular issue. And then you can kind of go through the different beliefs and see how those things play out culturally. So the reality is that even in pluralism, the subtle irony, while it has this appearance of being humble and not uh, grasping for power over other ideologies and philosophies, you can all coexist. The subtle irony is actually bringing all philosophies under their worldview and under their philosophy. So I think that's a good observation by Dr. Avalos. And he goes on to say this, and two, a pluralistic religious hegemony is a politically expedient means to persuade people to adopt a secular humanist hegemony, which I believe holds the best prospect for a global society. Phrased more frankly, religious pluralism is good so long as it does not interfere with secular humanism's goals. So religious pluralism, like what we have here in the United States, is good so long as it does not interfere with secular humanism's goals. And that's the place that I believe that we are going to get into trouble in secular Western liberal secular democracies at this point. It's when we go up against the humanistic goals. That's where we're going to run the problems. And it's never, because they're pluralistic and they're going to use this language of acceptance and tolerance, it's never going to be immediately because you're a Christian. If you're in the Middle East and you are taking on Islam, it is going to be a theological issue. So in a theocracy, be it you know Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whatever you know, sort of deity is there, there you're going to have a more immediate, deliberate religious persecution because you you are you you kind of have theological uh, categories as being the dominant factors, the hegemon hegemonic power. In secular humanism, since pluralism is a hegemonic power. There's a place for the Christian at the table as long as he is, in fact, submitting to secular humanism. And so you have to realize that when we're going to have this discussion with people and this debate with people and whether or not something is uh, religious persecution or just kind of good for society. And in, so in many of these instances, it's never going to have the appearance like me of being religious in nature because we can dump it under the categories of pluralism. Um, but I think that's where the rub is and one of the places where we need to look at the early church and is Tacitus uh, said that the Christians were persecuted because they're haters of the human race. And so I'm going to read a section from Philip Schaff's History of the Church, and I, and I just think there's a really good section, and uh, we'll brush on a couple other things. But Tacitus looks at the early Christians, and he says uh, that basically they're being persecuted because they were haters of humanity. And so what are the Christians going to be called today? Racist, sexist, homophobic. You guys hate humanity. You guys hate, 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 hate. And it's always going to be that. And so it's never going to be immediately because of the quote-unquote gospel outside of a theological order. So if your understanding of the gospel is Jesus died for your sins, he lives in your heart, 
believe that secular humanism has no qualms with you believing that sort of thing. They, they'll they begin to take issue with the minute you start speaking about sin, and it's more public. Um, but then from there, it's going to be set in the context of you being a hater of humanity. So here's Philip Schaff. He says this. To divert, this is uh, referring to Nero. To divert from himself the general suspicion of incendiarism, and at the same time to furnish new entertainment for his diabolical cruelty, Nero wickedly cast the blame upon the hated Christians as the burning of Rome, uh, who meanwhile, especially since the public trial of Paul and his successful labors in Rome, had come to be distinguished from the Jews as a genie uh, tertium, uh, kind of like a new species, I suppose, or as the most dangerous offshoot from that race, so the Jewish race. They were certainly despisers of, of Roman gods, are we despisers of American gods, and loyal subjects of a higher king than Caesar, and they were falsely suspected of secret crimes. Um, one of the other charges against the Christians were they were incestuous because they talk about, refer to each other as brothers and sisters, they're cannibals for the Lord's Supper, and that they were atheists because they would not serve the gods of uh, the Roman Empire, so secret crimes. The police and people, under the influence of the panic created by the awful calamity, were ready to believe the worst slanders and demand victims. What could be expected of the ignorant multitude when even such cultivated Romans as Tacitus, Sutinius, and Pliny stigmatized Christianity as a vulgar and pestiferous superstition? It is it appeared to them even worse than Judaism, which was at least an ancient national religion, while Christianity was novel, detached from any particular nationality, and aiming at universal dominion. Some Christians were arrested, confessed their faith, and were convicted, not so much, says Tacitus, of the crimes of incendiarism uh, as of hating the human race. Their Jewish origins, their indifference to pol- their indifference to politics. Think about that for a second. I, I, I kind of wish I could go back in time and had that developed a little bit more. But their indifference to politics and public affairs, their abhorrence of heathen customs, were construed into an odium generi humani, and this made an attempt on their part to destroy the city sufficiently plausible to justify a verdict of guilty. An infuriated mob does not stop to reason, and is apt to run mad as an individual. And so that's the reality of what the early Christians were facing under. Uh, Nero, and the charge against them was that they were haters against humanity, and so our society would not be falling apart like this way if it wasn't for, or the haters of the human race, if it was not for uh, the Christians. And so whether it was 2,000 years ago, or whether it's now, and when we're kind of the ones who are being scapegoated, I think we have to realize that like in Jacob Den Hollander's understanding of religious persecution, it's very rarely going to be in immediate terms of religious persecution. The Canadian government, in of itself, in a sense, does not care that people are Christians. They do care when they defy the civil magistrates. And so the question for us becomes, when is it appropriate to do those things? That's a bit beyond uh, what I want to do in this podcast. But the main thing I just want to emphasize is that under pluralism, we will be persecuted as people who hate humanity. So a few years ago, I was preaching down in Southern California. It was a really good day, and I was finishing up the day, and I said, hey, look, and the reality of it is, if you become a Christian, you're going to be accused of being a racist, sexist, homophobe. And everybody there laughed. And the reason they laughed is because they know that, yes, here's Here's what you're going to be called to do. So if you become a Christian, you're going to be called those things. So it's the implications of Christianity more so than the immediate Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, that anybody cares about. And that's why even Jesus himself says, the world hates me because I testify that their works are evil. So when we testify that you know, here's morality and here's why these things are evil, be it feminism, be it homosexuality, or whatever it may be, um, the world's going to hate us for that, and they're going to be claiming that you know, it's because you hate humanity. So that, that's the, that's a context that you have to understand that pluralism is working and it's going to come in at. So if you're looking for immediate, direct religious persecution, in general, it's not going to happen. 
So it's a, I think we just need to understand that reality. But uh, this is from a guy named Aristides. Uh, I think it was called the Defense of Christianity or Defense of the Christians. And I, th- I think the important thing is this, and, and here's one of the hard parts. I, I have no control over your life. I have no control over 99.999% of Christians. I might have influence over a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of some people, um, but it, you know the reality is I have no control over anybody else's life. Um, but what you hope is that when we are being persecuted, that we handle it well, kind of with our heads held high, not in arrogance uh, or defiance or just kind of like, you know, a, a guy getting fouled out of a game and he kind of walks off laughing like we, we come across arrogant and proud, but rather as people who are humble. And years ago, I came across this quote from Aristides. I just think it's very helpful. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of something else, uh, which, which is I kind of want to weigh I'm going to get me too far afield. I'm already at 16 minutes. So here, here we go. I'll just say this from Aristides. They walk in all humility and kindness. And falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that has distributes liberally to him that has not. If they see a stranger, they bring him in uh, under their roof and rejoice over him as if it were their own brother. Not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, uh, he provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear that any of the number are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. If there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. So as I think this thing kicks up over the next few years, I still think we're still maybe 15, 20 years away from getting really bad, Um, but it's just going to be that marginal secular squeeze. And hopefully you consider that Aristides quote and think through how can we walk in humility? How can we look after the orphan and the widowed? How can we take people in? How can we rejoice? How can we have this character that shows peace in it and that we are not shrill and shrieky people uh, lashing back out at the world. We are not left-wing activists, and so our activism uh, should not look antithetical in the sense of, oh, that's what the American left does? Well, we're just going to be the right-wing Christian version of that. We're going to complain and air our grievances and blah, 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 blah. We have to be people who, at times, are like Jesus, like a lamb to the slaughter, and we just keep our mouth shut. And there are other times where we just look after the orphan and the widow, we visit people in prison, we take care of their needs. And that's kind of the hard part. Uh, I feel like oftentimes when persecution comes, especially because we're Americans, it's easy. And, and what I mean by Americans is we, we we have a rights mentality, and I think there's an appropriate place for that. So I, I just can't get too far afield. But when persecution comes, uh, we need to be people who hold our head, head high and walk in obedience to God in humility, understanding that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and rulers and principalities of this current dark age. And we conquer them by laying down our lives for our enemies, not taking our enemies' lives. So that's what persecution is going to look like under pluralism. And that's the place where I think we need to be wise and understand what is going on. And from there, prep ourselves. Uh, prep ourselves in obedience to God, communion with God um, is the best place for us to prep ourselves, is to believe his gospel and to love it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's this episode of the Campus Church Podcast. We'll talk to you next week. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach at me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com, uh, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and Keith Darrell on Facebook. God bless you. Might well come before the bloom He 
runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you